I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, Scorsese's Killer Epic Edition. It's Wednesday, October 25th, 2023. On today's show, Killers of the Flower Moon is Martin Scorsese's adaptation of the nonfiction book by David Gran. Tells the story of a satanic plot to steal oil rights from the Osage Indians. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone and Robert De Niro. And then, what is Buffy without Joss Whedon? We discussed the podcast Slayers with uh, Slate's own Dan Coyce. And finally, the World Wide Web, right? Remember? Late 90s, mid 90s, uh, utopian fantasia that has turned since by 2023 into a dystopian realm of surveillance and commercial manipulation. We discuss why the internet is no longer fun. But joining me today first is uh, Julia Turner from the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey. Uh, Shall we make a show? We good? Yes, I'm so excited for this week's show. All right. Well, Killers of the Flower Moon, it was a 2017 nonfiction book by the author David Grant. It's now an epic film co-written and directed by Martin Scorsese. It takes place mostly in the 1920s after the Osage tribe has discovered vast oil deposits on its Oklahoma reservation. These are now being exploited by major oil companies, turning the Osage into the richest people per capita on Earth. It's like a mini Kuwait in the middle of Oklahoma. Then came a series of mysterious deaths, but with a pattern. Uh, They resulted in a white settler inheriting the head rights from the deceased person, i.e. the rights essentially to the income from the oil. The movie centers its story on Molly, an Osage woman played by Lily Gladstone, who's courted and married by Ernest, a white settler played by Leonardo DiCaprio. He may or may not be in love with Molly. It's actually quite ambiguous. At the same time, he is beholden, however, to William Hale, the chief architect of the murder scheme played by De Niro. As I said, the movie's co-written. It's directed by Scorsese. Let's, uh, let's listen to a clip. It's early in the film when DiCaprio's character Ernest is courting Molly, played by Gladstone. In the scene we're going to hear, he's working as her chauffeur and they exchange flirty banter. Let's, uh, let's have a listen. He told me he was... He was going with Matt Williams for a time. You talk too much. No, I don't talk too much. Just thinking who I got to beat in this horse race, that's all. I didn't realize this was a race. I don't care for watching horses. Well, I'm a different kind of horse. What was that? That's how you are. I don't know what she said, but it must have been Indian for handsome devil. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, her laughter. Dana, um, I know from your review you quite admired this film. Talk to us about it. Actually, I have a little comment about that clip, which is that apparently that line of his about the handsome devil was improvised. And that moment when she laughs was a real laugh of surprise. And she also, when you're watching the film, looks off to the side at that moment. Mm. And she was apparently looking to Scorsese to see, are we keeping this take, you know, with the improvisation? So they were sort of, you know, in- improving in character there, which I love. And it gives that scene some of its spontaneity. Uh 
I mean, I have so much to say about this movie. I'll just scratch the surface in my first response. If people want to go to Slate, they can read my sprawling, not as sprawling as the movie, but, you know, 2000 or something word review of the movie, which is basically an almost unmitigated rave. I mean, I think to my astonishment, I went in with high expectations, uh, but they were utterly exceeded. And I think this is one of Scorsese's best movies Mm -hmm. (laughs) and certainly one of his best for me, most special to me that I've seen in the last decade or so. And I am not some Scorsese fangirl who just went in prepared to say that no matter what. I really think this is an extraordinary accomplishment, achievement, him doing something that he has not done before. And this movie left me enraptured for days afterward. I I read the book by David Grant after seeing the movie, which I'm glad I did. Either order would be fine, uh, I think. But I think going and not knowing the story made the movie really emotionally powerful. And then reading the book afterwards, right afterwards, because I sort of wanted to stay in the, in the film's world and see what was true and what wasn't and explore the historic case itself. And uh, and reading the book afterward made me realize what an incredible adaptation it actually is. Because while staying faithful to the facts of the story, obviously there's some some compression and condensation and shifting of focus and not everything makes it in. And we can talk about that. But what the movie really does is take that relationship, Ernest and Molly's relationship, in a way that the book doesn't and really kind of can't, you know, because there aren't sort of love letters that survive between them. There's not really evidence of what their relationship was like. It's sort of a black box in the story. And Scorsese just opens that black box in this incredibly powerful way. So I have lots of things to say about this movie, almost all good. But I'll just start off by saying it is without question one of the best movies I've seen in many years. And I highly recommend that people go, despite the length, you know, don't drink too much water beforehand, nourish yourself well. Um, I do wish it had an intermission, as I say in my review. I think that's one of the critiques I have is that it needs to give the audience a little bit of a mental and physical break. But it is gorgeous and complex and an astounding work of art, in my opinion. Julia, that's quite the bar set there. Where where do you fall on this? I'm really glad I saw this movie and I found a lot to admire in it. And I thought it was a really interesting evolution of Scorsese's work. I think there was a line in Justin Chang's LA Times review about how it was sort of simultaneously the assured work of a master and a wobbly first step in his kind of centering of the story of a woman of color and exploring some cultural terrain that he hadn't yet. Um, I was curious what you guys made of how the film centers the the Leonardo DiCaprio character. I found that character to be a bit of a cipher in a way that I felt emotionally confused about what what was actually animating DiCaprio's character. And I I wonder if you guys had that experience. I mean, I had a little bit of my like, well, why, but why are you doing the thing? What don't do the bad things? Stop doing the bad things. Why are you doing the bad things? (laughs) And, and his, you know, the, the, the way in which he's under the De Niro character's thumb is obviously one of the answers I liked your use of the word gormless to describe him in your review, Dana. He's definitely (laughs) gormless. (laughs) But um, the film is centered on his perspective in an interesting way. And I read the book many years ago when it came out and I haven't gone back to it, but I remember it being a little bit more focused on her perspective. And I, I wondered about this choice to center this kind of like shape shifting idiot. Is he in love with her? 
Is he doing all this because he, quote, loves money? Does he actually love money? Why does he love money? What? It, why is he so willing to do these hurtful things? Like, I, I, And maybe those mysteries are what makes the film profound, but I, 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 I found some psychological inertness in them. And maybe they're a way of metaphorically asking the question of how how an entire civilization could have been so gormless and cruel and horrible. But like, I don't know. Did that not, did you guys not wrestle with that? I mean, I know Steve hasn't spoken yet and I, I really want to get to his response. But in, in response to that question about the character, Julia, I think that that is the mystery and the ambiguity that at the heart of the story and that is the thing that made me stay in that world for those days is is the, the kind of moral mystery of how you yeah. could love someone, which I think the film establishes that this couple is at least in for, at first in love, um, which, you know, does seem to have been the historic case to the extent to which we can know such a thing. Uh and, you know, and, the, and that yet there can be such a horrible act of betrayal. And I think that my answer also would speak to something that I'm sure we'll get to in our conversation at some point, which is the critique in some quarters of this movie uh, not being framed enough around an Osage point of view. And that, you know, the protagonist, if you want to call DiCaprio that, I mean, he's an antihero for sure, right? But he is, I suppose, the character we spend the most time with. Uh it being a white man, my my primary response to that would be, and I felt this so profoundly watching the movie, that this is a movie about whiteness, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that to critique Martin Scorsese for being a white man who's, you know, taking someone else's perspective is, is really wrong because this movie feels to me like such a profound self-incrimination and the ending, which we won't spoil, I right. think really reveals that in a very artful way, but... You know, when there started to be in the 90s sort of courses about whiteness, right, in universities, I just remember there being these sort of jokes about, you know, well, what what is there to be taught in the class given that American mm-hmm. white culture sort of consists of nothing but feeding on the resources of others? And that is what this movie is about precisely. And so in that sense, having this morally corrupt and utterly gormless figure at the center who doesn't know how to make moral choices, right, even when he has impulses like loving his wife and his family that might lead him toward moral choices, he's ultimately corrupted and captivated and unable to escape that prison of whiteness that, you know, he and the Robert De Niro character and every white character in the movie is is constantly constructing mm. for themselves and everyone else. Right. I couldn't agree with you more enthusiastically. I and mean, I love this movie. I, I have to disclose up front that I'm very close friends with um, David Grant, the author of the book, and um, take what I say accordingly. But I, you know, Dana, I think you're absolutely right. I think there are two things at the heart of this movie, right? One is as you say, it's a study in white sociopathy and white sociopathy, white American male sociopathy as it relates to greed and the insatiable urge for more. And then cutting against that, as you say, is first of all, I know the entire history of David's attempt to make the Osage tribe participants in the entire process as they have been from the beginning, including the from the chief on down in the creation of the book and the film. It was about honoring the victims of of that sociopathy in this specific and and spectacular in the worst possible sense of the word uh, instance. And they placed a kind of silence at the heart of this movie, both in the writing of it, but also ultimately in the transcendent performance of Lily Gladstone. And you need, I think, because of the limits of the source material to some degree, um, but also in order to really honor what that person and what that tribe was about, you needed this kind of deep capacity for 
repose and silence, right? A very key moment in the movie, she forces him, Ernest DiCaprio, to shut up very early on in their courtship and sit side by side with one another, not facing each other, and listen to the rain. Storm, it's a... Well, it's powerful. (laughs) So we need to be quiet for a while. actually an extraordinary cinematic moment right this, including this, the framing right yeah. which is i think a point that justin chang made as well that that scorsese tends to frame them as equals sitting side by side in the frame you know rather than doing a sort of over the shoulder shot you know a typical cut that you might do in a conversation absolutely and it's a beautiful cinematic moment and the, the one thing i would say julia i really believed that as I was watching that DiCaprio deserves the statue this year. I thought it was an extraordinary performance. I know that it's divided audiences. I thought all of the pain and all of the ambivalence, excruciating ambivalence, he wants to please William Hale, his uncle. You want to please the Godfather, right? That's in all of these movies that Scorsese made. It's in all the Godfather movies. You want to please this this very homosocial world of male mutual reinforcement and status that involves violence. You want, I mean, part of you does, and I can't speak for all men. At the same time, you actually want to be a full and rounded human being, right? And I just saw that character and that performance by that actor is embodying that very dilemma. What do you think of DiCaprio, Julia? I'm curious. Well, it's so interesting. I mean, I, I I hear you guys, and I think you're right about what the movie's interested in, about what it's trying to say. And I again, I really liked it. Like, I'm not intending this as a critique, but I don't... I felt like the rapacious history and instinct of whiteness that, yes, the movie is about, I didn't feel it was revealed by that character or the portrayal. Mm. Like, I didn't feel like it was psychologically revealed. I felt like it was presented as this confounding, heartbreaking, tragic, awful, despicable mystery. And I feel like the performance is slightly odd because it's like a performance of a void. Um, And maybe that's the point. Like, maybe that's the point. But I found myself wanting to say, okay, if this master and this incredible actor are going to take me to the heart of the darkness of whiteness, I want I, I want to understand, and I, and instead I found, and again I I don't say this as like, uh, I think this is something that makes me like a simpleton sometimes as a respondent to literature. But I had the same feeling that I've described on the show about Raskolnikov and Crime and Punishment, where I'm like, oh my god, just don't kill the lady, <laughs> like just don't kill her, just fucking stop whining and just don't do the stupid thing. I had a bit of that. Oh my God. (laughs) Which again, reveals more about me probably than the film. But I, so I don't know, like it's a compelling performance, but it's, um, and I, and I understand why the film is structured the way it is. And and that it's sort of Scorsese telling the story he feels is his to tell within this landscape. And, and I think you can, you know, feel the, the efforts at respect for whose story it is in the film and in the way that it is prosecuted and in the way it concludes. But it, um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think you can't underestimate the fact that his character is just simply not very smart, 
as he himself often owns, right? And not very strong. He is weak-willed Weakness, and yeah. he's dim-witted, you know, and he's easily manipulated as, as his uncle, played by Robert De Niro, can see. I don't know. I guess, I guess to me... To me, I agree with Steve. I think it was one of DiCaprio's greatest performances. Yeah. And getting to see him play somebody who's not cocky and on top of the world as the characters he plays tend to be, you know, it was, it was a kind of a great reach for him. But that said, Lily Gladstone practically steals the film from everyone. Also, and and yeah. any kind of critique that says, oh, she's too sidelined. She's not enough of a character. No, I won't get into the structure of why there's a section of the film where she's sidelined. But you are so aware of yes. her off-screen presence and so the agonized for her well, yes. well-being and safety during that time time. She also is not written or played at all as a victim. I mean, obviously, her entire family and her entire tribe are victims or potential victims of violence at every moment, but she is no damsel in distress. She's such a complete and, uh, and, and beautifully realized character, even though she doesn't get a lot of dialogue. And mm-hmm. not, not that she doesn't get a lot of dialogue, that she, as you say, Steve, is a quiet observant and watchful character and she just carries that off so extraordinarily i'm really glad she's doing a lead actress um oscar campaign because she's unquestionably the lead actress in this film i do think it's a masterpiece and uh please go see it and uh, let us know how you thought of it killers of the flower moon it's in theaters now all right well before we go any further this is the moment in our podcast when we typically discuss business dana what uh, what do you have Steve, we have a couple items of business this week. The first one is just a small correction from something I said last week on the show. We got a couple listener emails saying that I wasn't quite right. I still think my basic point stands. But we were talking about that Jason Farrago argument about uh, the last... 200 centuries of art and whether anything new is happening in the 21st century. You can go back to last week's show to to hear that argument. It was a really interesting article. Uh, but I gave a slightly wrong statistic in something I said in talking about the Ang Lee movie Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk from 2016. Uh, that movie is a high frame rate movie, as are the Peter Jackson Hobbit movies. But I had said that they were all 120 FPS, frames per second. I was wrong. For, Peter Jackson actually made a 48 FPS movie, and Ang Lee took it even further and made a 120 20 FPS movie. I still say that my point stands is that most people saw high frame rate on the big screen for the first time in the Peter Jackson movies. But thanks to the two listeners who wrote in about that. Our only other item of business is to talk about today's Slate Plus segment. We were inspired by an article in The New Yorker called Confessions of an Audiobook Addict to talk about our own relationship to audiobooks. I think we may have talked about this before on the show, but if so, it was years ago. And I know that my relationship to audiobooks has changed a lot since then, and I think they occupy a different place in the culture. So the question, do you use them? Do you think of them as the same as reading? How do they relate to your other reading practice is what we're going to address in today's Slate Plus segment. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can hear that at the end of this episode episode. If you're not a Slate Plus member, what can you do? You can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. In exchange for your membership dollars, you will get ad-free podcasts, so you'll never have to hear me pitching insurance at you again. You'll get bonus content like the segment I just described, which exists on lots of other shows as well. And you'll get unlimited access to all of the writing and all the podcasting on Slate.com. These memberships are really a big part of what helps keep us going. So please sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that URL is Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Okay, onward. Okay, before we get going on our next segment, which is about the fate of the Buffyverse, uh, let me just say that Dana will be sitting out and will be joined by Dan Coyce. Okay, hey, Dan, of course, you're uh, the writer and editor at Slate, uh, Dan Coyce, author of the novel Vintage Contemporaries. And as I understand it, am I right, something of a Buffy completist? Uh, Yeah, I watched the series several times, 
back when it ran and now with my kids. Okay, I'm going to have you fact check me, just fly spec every syllable I'm about to say. Don't be afraid to tell me I'm wrong. But the original movie that was written by Joss Whedon showed up in 92. He felt creatively compromised in the making of it. So he took the IP and he made an iconic television show out of it that premiered in 1997, of course, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And in some sense, out of that show, I mean, that's very, very early. It's almost like pre-peak TV, arguably. It's before the premiere of The Sopranos. And it's way before uh, Marvel began cranking out movies. But it's sort of the original incarnation of a, of a renewed nerd culture I'd argue, and it still has to this day one of the most intensely committed fan cults in existence. On the other hand, you have its creator, Joss Whedon, who, based on everything he had said and done to that point, and uh, particularly the content of his output in both Buffy and the Avengers movie, was a, a feminist. Um, he's been outed allegedly as a, a martinet, as a showrunner and director at best. And, you know, I think also at best, according to multiple testimonies, a borderline creep. So he has, I think it's safe to say, been canceled or all but canceled. Uh, Dan, it really raises a really interesting question, though. Can you have one without the other? Can you have this Buffyverse that people are thirsting for more content in and around um, without Joss Whedon? Um, you've written a piece, Can You Have Buffy Without Joss Whedon, the occasion of which is a new podcast, Slayers, on Audible. So why don't you talk to us about this podcast, whether or not you feel fan-serviced by it, but in the context of this larger question of Buffy without Joss Whedon. One of the interesting things about the Buffyverse is that, you know, unlike Star Wars um, or the Marvel Universe or many of the other ones, the Buffyverse has forever just really been associated with one person, with Joss, to the extent that, you know, forever it was only canon in the Buffyverse if Joss said it was canon. So people would like go to him asking, hey, is this thing in this comic book that you didn't write canon and he'd be like no or yes i think so and then they'd put it on the internet and everyone would accept it and so much of people's love of the the characters on the show were wrapped up around this sense of themselves as participating in this like revolution in pop culture that joss himself was helping to inaugurate and when you know he got put in charge of the avengers people who were fans of buffy were like ah yes we are now starting to take over uh, pop culture. We are making it smarter and more enlightened and better and more feminist. And so, as you say, these the allegations against him have really forced a lot of fans to renegotiate their, their affection for the series and their relationship with the series. And so there has come this sort of whole new wave of fandom, which is sort of about dispensing with Joss, but is about embracing what people perceive to be like the spirit of the show, the um, rambunctious and revolutionary and feminist spirit of the show, even though Joss couldn't himself couldn't live up to that. And you embrace the actors on the show, people like Charisma Carpenter and Amber Benson, the ones who alleged the abuse from Joss um, and celebrate them and their work. And so this new podcast is unique sort of among the universe of Buffy spinoffs because it's created by those actors and it stars those actors. It's the first Buffyverse product in 20 plus years, I think, to have Charisma Carpenter as Cordelia and Amber Benson as Tara and uh, Anthony Stewart Head as Giles and Spike and, you know, a bunch of very familiar characters. And it was 
co-written by Amber Benson. And a lot of the framing and publicity around this podcast has been about this is a way to support these actors, particularly these women, um, as they sort of reclaim these characters and this story from the man who they feel sort of wrecked it for them and by extension for all of us. Okay, before we go any further, let's listen to a clip from the podcast Slayers. In this uh, clip, we're going to hear a vampire named Spike and a demon named Clem. They're both characters from the original show. It's their encounter with a new vampire slayer named Indira. Let's listen. Hello, young slayer. My name is Clement, and I'd like to apologize. Hey, now. Hello, Clement. Come on, kid. Call your slayer jets for a minute, right? We just saved your life. I was not the friendliest. I was just trying to... (gasps) How? That friendly enough? Look, kid, you can hit him all you want, but it's not going to make us your enemies. You locked me in a trunk. Getting you to safety? You're a demon and he's a vampire. Spike, she has point. Wait. Spike? I mean, they they called you that back at the club, but I didn't think... (laughs) I mean, are you like Spike? Spike? Like Summers, Rosenberg, Giles, Spike? Last time I checked. (gasps) Oh my god. Oh my god, it really is you. I'm not going to lie. Totally a fan. Julia, remind us what your relationship to this material was. I'm a Buffy completist, or or at least a completist of the show. Uh, watched the whole thing, not in real time, I think a little bit later on DVD with my roommate in like 2004. So whatever that makes me. Uh and was a huge fan, in part because of the the thing you described. It felt like a feminist fantasy world of the sort that culture didn't offer a ton of at that time, and the way in which it kind of remixed cultural references and and uh, the goofiness of it and the assuredness of its tone all appealed to us. And I wouldn't say I was enough of a fan to have been personally heartbroken by the revelations about Joss, in addition to all the ones you mentioned about the workplace, there is the perhaps irrelevant but still interesting accusations of his, I think now ex-wife, about sort of rampant cheating and disrespect, often with the wife-claimed young women. Um, and it, just like a big pile of yuckaroo. Uh And I think I probably put all of that in the context of looking back on certain kind of late 90s, early aughts ideas about feminism and sexuality, all of which sometimes feel a bit yuckaroo from this particular moment in time. So I think that's how I think about it in the abstract. What I found interesting about both listening to this audiobook slash podcast slash audio drama or whatever we're calling it, I couldn't tell if it was bad because it was a poorly conceived audiobook or because it didn't have the particular perverse spark of Joss himself as its creator. Like, it is not very good. It is, like, I listened to a lot of it. I didn't turn it off. It sort of felt like audio fan fiction or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember these characters and these actors, and it mostly isn't my favorite characters except for Spike. Like, oh, my God, if you told me I was going to have to hang out with Drusilla in my ears again, like, truly the most annoying character in the entire history 
of of the Buffyverse. And actually, they make her like slightly more sane and less irritating to listen to, um, which is a blessing. Tisk, tisk. I've been a bad girl. Sometimes I don't know my own strength. I don't know. It was like pleasant enough. It, it passed the time. It's also ridiculous. I mean, you you have a very funny description in your piece on it, Dan, of like how many fights there are in it, and it's just like ooh, grunt, like <laughs> lame quip. <laughs> Slap, wham, get her, Spike. So that's all like incredibly misconceived. I was talking to a friend of mine who who produces audio dramas and he asked me how the series was and I said they just seem to feel like there just need to be a lot of fight scenes and he went, oh Christ, why didn't they ask me about that? I could have told him. But I think you're right that the real issue is that um, it really does lack the kind of perverse and um, slightly evil and malevolent spark that Joss's best writing had. And that is sort of what I ended up getting into in the piece that you're right. That one of the reasons we all loved Buffy in the, uh, you know, in the nineties had to do with these ideas of pop feminism and strong women that many of which seem a little bit um, embarrassing today, but it also was like this operatic, drama that put its characters through hell in like very specifically astonishing ways. Like the kinds of things the characters in that show have to deal with are the kinds of problems and situations that you only would usually see in like passions or some other totally crazy daytime soap. Um, And that had a lot to do with Joss's willingness to be really cruel to those characters, which it seemed to me goes hand in hand with his apparent alleged willingness to be really cruel to people on set and people in his life. And, um, and, and this show doesn't have that. It is, as you say, a kind of audio fan fiction and it's built out of affection for these characters in part because they're the characters, the actors themselves have played the actors who are the ones calling the shots on this, the ones trying to reclaim this, property from Joss. Yeah, no, I read Jersey making that point. And I guess the thing I would push back on is like, I do, um, there's a ruthlessness, right? There's a, there's a creatorial ruthlessness that you need for drama to be really compelling. Right. But I don't, I, I think your argument, Dan, slightly conflated the notion of being ruthless from a creative and narrative perspective and then being like a ruthless shithead on set. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I don't think those two are the same, you know, like I think it is possible to be creatively ruthless and managerially responsible. And oh, it definitely I is. think you're, it, no, you're absolutely I, right. I just don't think Joss is capable. I, th- I don't think Joss views them as different. To me, what's interesting, and we should probably say a little bit more about the gender of this, it's not that powerful women as a concept is laughable looking back. Still very strongly in favor of powerful women, <laughs> uh, you know, just, just to clarify, because I think we're shorthanding that. But what's interesting looking back at it, for me, is that he's hot for these characters, you know? Like, th- that's, mm-hmm. and he's hot for Buffy in her tank tops in high school. 
and you can like feel it when you rewatch it in a way that's yucky. And there was something that felt fresh about the type of woman who was being drooled over being a woman who kicked ass and was sardonic and had emotional range, but also could beat you up, but that it was just a different type of male gaze and a different type of fantasy. Um, and there was something freeing about being the star of that fantasy or, or watching that. And, and there was certainly emotional richness in the show beyond just the objectification, but like, that's the thing. That's the thing that's there. Um, and I don't think, I just am wary of arguments that like his yuckiness is what made the show great. I do think the show was great. And I think sometimes yucky people make things that are great, but I don't, I also wonder whether the show could have been even greater if mm. it was less yucky. And I think the 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 kind of mediocrity, like wham bam sludge of this audiobook does not really prove the case either way. Um, Julia, I do think that one of the things that the fandom has really embraced in the last couple of years is this sort of broader concept of reminding people that many of the things that are great about Buffy don't necessarily have anything to do with Joss Whedon, that there was, you know, an entire universe of other producers, other writers, many of them women, who who they view now as sort of making the show great in spite of the environment they were in, as opposed to because of the environment that Whedon created. All right. Well, Slayers is a nine-part Audible podcast. Check it out. I'm sure we have plenty of Buffy fans in our listener pool. Uh, shoot us an email if you have any thoughts on this subject. Dan, thanks for coming in. This was great. Thanks, guys. Okay, well, why the internet isn't fun anymore? Why isn't it fun anymore? It's the subject of a New Yorker essay by Kyle Chaika uh, in the October 9th issue. But we should say it's it's like a, a funny cluster of trend pieces all centering around the same basic issue, which is that, you know, this once utopian, kind of joyous, uh, omni, omniscient, sort of omni-everything you know, technology, this sort of paragon of human instrumentality and, and potentially democracy um, has turned into just kind of a, a hellscape in some sense. And at a bare minimum, it's just not fun. But one should also say, Dana, I'll start with you. You know, you were you were really good are really good at Twitter, right? Like what's wonderful about knowing you as a person was really made evident on Twitter, which I would say is unusual for the medium. Um, and you had a I keep saying past tense. I mean, presumably you're still on it. You have a substantial following. Um, and yet, you know, no one is more alive to the fact that Musk is by and large a monster and he's destroying the medium. I mean, surely all of these pieces resonate with you. The internet went from something that was not only fun, but like in a, in a good way, in a healthy way, a self-fulfilling, to something that's a series of hurdles, manipulations, surveillances, nudges in the worst sense. and it's Misinformation. Misinformation. And it's hyper-commercialized as well. Early on, it wasn't. You know, where are you right now on all of this? I mean, honestly, I feel morally called out by, by your question. I know you didn't mean it that no, way. but the opposite. But the opposite. I'm struggling at this very moment with like, like, should I close my Twitter account entirely? Um, the only reason I haven't, quite honestly, is because 
that's where all my followers are. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. over a period of more than a decade, I somehow amassed at one point it was like 55,000 people. Now it's dropped to about 50 because I assume presumably people are leaving the platform and I'm barely on there myself. I'm one of them, yeah. But when it comes down to it, let's even say that, you know, 10, 20% of those are bots. That's still tens of thousands of people who want to read what I write. And it took a long time to build that audience. And I cannot bring myself to completely abandon that site for that reason. Um, but it's absolutely true that it's been ruined, completely ruined. This is going to be a segment, I hope, a bigger conversation yes, than just much. being about Twitter. But um, but it's something that I, I've really struggled with just specifically over the last two weeks since the outbreak of violence in Israel-Palestine, because it really became clear very, very rapidly. It was almost like, you know, the way that you become aware of climate change because you wake up one morning and the sky is orange, right? That's what Twitter was like after the violence broke out, you know, in Israel-Palestine, because all of a sudden, the work that Elon had done, and it now seems to me very purposely done, not just sloppily done, yes. to undo the structure of the scaffolding that made any sort of truth possible on the site, you know, just just was flagrantly clear, right? So basically, and I read this this uh, statistic somewhere, I think this was an ad week, 74% of the misinformation being spread specifically about the violence in Israel and Palestine is being spread by blue checks, the new blue checks by mm -hmm. verified accounts who are right. paying for their check on Twitter, which means that essentially there is just an army of bots, of disinformation spreaders, of liars, you know, of red pillars uh, that are now running the majority of, uh, of news about that particular topic. So if you even if you go on there as a very sophisticated news consumer who has some idea of how to filter through what's true or what's not, it's utterly puzzling. Twitter is no longer a place where you can simply go to find some headlines about what's going on, you know. And so recently, I mean, just within the past year, even even post-Musk to some extent, there would be evenings where you'd go on and say, I've just got to understand this breaking right. news event. Right. You know, if I go on there, at the very least, a few trusted voices will be pointing me towards something that's true, and I can start to put together my own opinion about it. That is no longer true at all. Not to mention, I mean, this is less politically alarming, but it's very sad uh, as a, a social site, you know, as a place to go and, you know, post a recipe, you know, meet a new friend, uh, post your work and read the work of others just as a place where people could actually congregate and share, you know, things that were not lies mm -hmm. and, um, and insults, but, you know, pieces of, of valuable information. That's all completely gone. So I think probably, and I'm, I'm pretty much moved over to Blue Sky now as far as just social posting, but I don't know what we're going to really do without a real centralized information marketplace. And I don't think we've even begun to figure out, like, what a huge loss that is that it's just been handed over to the wolves. I was struck by your use of um, climate change as a metaphor, Dana, because I was thinking about the same thing. So having helped news sites navigate the Internet for the last 20 years, I've always had kind of like a nautical metaphor in mind, right? That every different internet era is like a different weather system and you got to trim the sails of the ship you're on to navigate that weather. So if it's a search era, you got to figure out what you can do for search that's you. If it's the rise of audio, you got to figure out is audio a medium for you. And this does feel... Like I, we feel between weather patterns. It's been between weather patterns for like a year or so. I keep waiting for clarity. 
around the next water, weather pattern. And, and so I was also thinking of the metaphor of climate change of like, oh, I think maybe that whole thing where there's a new system every 18 to 36 months is over. And actually, I don't know. There is no more weather. <laughs> like, I'm not sure. I agree with everything both of you have said. The only silver lining here, the only conceivable anti-declinist argument about the just utterly baleful state of Twitter and the internet in general is that maybe we'll cultivate more of our offline selves. And it's not, there's no substitution effect. And I, you have to acknowledge that there was something unique about what Twitter was doing before Musk, pre-Musk. And I agree with you. It's a, Dana, it can only be interpreted from the evidence as a calculated attempt to destroy its most basic usability, not to mention its trustworthiness. I mean, it's just been crushed. Even though I, from a personal level, I kind of identify with what you're saying about, well, maybe this is just a good chance to re-enter meat space and, you know, not use social media so much. I mean, as far as individual people's mental health, that is no doubt true. And I hope that that yeah. will happen in my own life. And yeah. I think it already is to the extent that Twitter's so boring that I don't want to be on there much anymore. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, but, but that is a different question from how, oh, how yes. we, the Internet exists, right? Are we just giving the Internet over to just red-pilled you know, genocidal weirdos? I mean, is there going to be any place for people to speak reasonably in the, you know, in the in the internet space? It does all make me wonder about Wikipedia as a model, right? Because so much of what is driving some of the chaos at these places is is the profit motive, right? Is Is sort of offering something utopian, for free to lure customers or for free because you actually are a utopist at beginning at the beginning. Um, and then the thing getting kind of cruddier and cruddier. And I should say, actually, I'm realizing as I use the word cruddier um, that we read a really smart essay in our prep doc by Cory Doctorow about the enshittification of platforms, which I thought was really worth checking out um, and speaks to this dynamic. I totally agree with you about Wikipedia and maybe the one source of possible hope being the nonprofit model. What I find really interesting, though, is that when you look at what's ale allegedly destroying the Internet, I mean, on the, you have the sort of opaque apparent sociopathy of Elon Musk, who's not driven by the profit motive. He's taking a $44 billion or whatever it was purchase and driving it literally into the ground as a business. You have the crudification model of a at least somewhat plausibly utopian thing in Inception, slowly getting massively hyper-commercialized in order to enrich the founders and please Wall Street, aka Instagram, Facebook, on and on. And then you have the, as someone points out in one of the pieces we, we read, you have Reddit, which in some ways is, you know, more on the Wikipedia end of it, at least. I and mean, it's certainly a crowd-sourced, you know, source of opinion and information and often can be quite good. It's being SEO hacked. And so it's, you know, and then, of course, you've got the larger trend, which was always implicit in the medium of you've got very alienated diaspora of angry people in the world who are politically quite paranoid. They feel humiliated or disenfranchised for reasons that are maybe totally invalid. And they can only form an, a politically important, socially consequential entity 
if they can find one another. They may be one person in one town, or or there may be a hundred people in one town, but they don't know that these are their private feelings until there's such a thing as the internet. So it's just all of the forces of like, you know, anarchy and and destruction plus all of the horrible organized forces of expropriation and commercial overexploitation and all of the worst elements of reactionary white male backlash. It's like, holy shit, why was this thing ever good? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. All right. Well, maybe I can end on some notion of of hope in talking about why was it ever good or but maybe this is just hopelessly nostalgic and, and retro looking but maybe there's some chance as in station 11 where there's shakespeare after the apocalypse in the traveling clan of players maybe there's some hope again in what used to be the world of blogging i mean you mentioned me as this mm. you know this this big twitter user over a certain period of time which is true um my handle on Twitter and on in case people want to find me elsewhere, all other social media platforms is the high sign. The reason that's my platform is it was the name of my blog back in the early 2000s. And I was part of that sort of not very early, you know, not the earliest adopters of the mid 90s Internet, but the early 2000s blossoming of blogs, right? When people just sort of freely offered their goofy thoughts, in my case, about movies or about whatever. But, you know, people just had personal sites that they created for love and that sort of linked to each other and created this web of people speaking that before social media was a way you could sort of find your way through alternate channels. I don't know if there's any hope of blogs coming back. I know that's in a way what Substack is, but Substack, of course, is a different thing because it's a paid model. All I can say is I miss my Google Reader, (laughs) and I'm going to try to go back to the days of having some sort of RSS feed that takes me to places that I know I want to go. Because otherwise, as one of the articles that we we read and prep for this segment says, you go online to just sort of goof off, and you don't know where to go anymore. (laughs) Like, where do you go to have fun? Mm, Where do you go to have fun indeed? Well, you listen to podcasts? I don't know. Anyway, all right. This is one we'd love to hear. I mean, we always say it, we always mean it, but it'd be great to hear from our listeners who no doubt or have been at one point heavy internet users, Twitter members, on and on. Tell us uh, tell us what you think. Shoot us an email. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dane. What, uh, what do you have? Steve, in our discussion of Killers of the Flower Moon, in our focus on, I think rightly so, on the the story and the performances and the perspective that Filmmaker took, we didn't really get into talking about the craft of the movie that much. Mm-hmm. And the craft of the movie is pretty overpoweringly wonderful on every level, from the cinematography to the costumes to the production design. And uh, there's a lot to read after you get out of the movie, if you want to, about about how all of that stuff was created and some great conversations with Martin Scorsese, who's everywhere in the media right now talking about his movie, largely because of the actor's strike. The actors can't promote the movie, but that gives us a lot more face time with one of the world's greatest and fastest talkers about cinema. Um, he talks a lot about some of the, the craft people he worked with, but I wanted specifically to send people, especially after they've seen Killers of the Flower Moon, to this profile of Jack Fisk, who was the production designer. I did not know the the mystery of Jack Fisk, who was apparently this legendary figure within the film industry. To give you an idea of how long he's been around and what beautiful sets he's built, he was a production designer for Days of Heaven, which we talked about. Remember, it was one of my comfort films during the the early (laughs) pandemic. Amazing. And uh, if you think about the way Days of Heaven looks, right? I mean, this like 
incredible house, this hopper-like house standing in the middle of a, a prairie, this kind of sense of, of, of barrenness, how completely convinced you are that you're in the past, you know, that you have just suddenly translated yourself to the early 20th century. Killers of the Flower Moon has some of that, too. It's a very specific past that he creates. And uh, if you want to read about how Jack Fisk, who has doesn't work that often because he's off living on his farm with Sissy Spacek, his wife of many decades— who he met while designing the the set for Badlands, the movie she did with Malick. Anyway, um, Jack Fisk is an extraordinary character, and there's a beautiful profile of him that came out in the New York Times magazine a couple weeks ago, right before the, the Scorsese movie came out. The genius behind Hollywood's most indelible sets, in which the author, Noel Gallagher Shannon, follows Jack Fisk around at his farm and watches him split rails and, you know, work in his workshop and talk about what it is to recreate the 1920s on an Oklahoma reservation. And you will, as you will see, the level of detail that he gets into in his production designs for all his movies, I think, is just nothing short of psychotic. <laughs> but that's what makes the movies feel so grounded and beautiful. So um, read about Jack Fisk in the New York Times. That is really cool. Julia, what do you have? All right. My endorsement is ridiculous, um, but I think it's fitting given our our kind of eulogy for the lost internet segment. Um, But my husband and I watched Sleepless in Seattle the other night. He was doing some research on romantic comedies for his work, and I um, watched a a bunch of it. I didn't actually watch the whole thing, but I watched like the first half of it before I went to clean up the kitchen. And um, in it, there is this amazing moment where Meg is dishing to her best friend, her newspaper editor, played by Rosie O'Donnell, where she starts to mention that she thinks that the Tom Hanks character she's heard on the radio doesn't sound like a creep. And Rosie O'Donnell responds in a manner that like should have become a meme. And now I think it's like too late for a weird moment from Sleepless in Seattle to become a meme, but I have to, we like rewatched it 60 times and I (laughs) took this video of it. So I'm going to play it as audio for you guys in hopes of making like a a belated meme. Like consider this like the flickering campfire of the future of the internet is I'm going to play you the audio of a video clip from my phone into a podcast. And this is the future guys. Ready? Actually, he sounded nice. Oh? Oh, really? Now we're getting down to it. Please. I don't know if you could hear it, but after she says, now we're getting down to it, it goes, (laughs) and she like chomps a bite of egg salad into her mouth and you hear like, again, the sound of the fork tines. And I just, can you just imagine the alternate internet where anytime anybody shares any goss, somebody spreads a, a, a gif of, oh, really? Now we're getting down to it. Chomp. <laughs> so that's my endorsement. You're welcome. Oh, my God. Rosie O'Donnell, Julia Turner, maybe my favorite Julia Turner of all time. Like, that's in you. That's somewhere in you. And I didn't didn't know till now. Um, I'm going to endorse um, a writer whose name is um, Shakespeare. <laughs> Not mm-hmm. familiar. He's very good. Yeah. I mean, it's, gotten, it's a little antique you know. you got to kind of work your way beyond that, like kind of convoluted plots and a lot of shit crammed in there. But it turns out it's quite rewarding. Stick with it. Um, 
But <laughs> without spoiling anything, there's a moment towards the end of um, Killers of the Flower Moon. I think it's safe to say signals that if it's not Scorsese's last movie, it might be. And if it is, there's a gesture near the end of it that reminded me very much of the end of what is presumed to be the last play Shakespeare wrote, The Tempest. So The Tempest features Prospero, this wise old figure who has been stranded on an island for whoever knows how long, I can't remember, but he's um, now going to be liberated from the island, returned to his dukedom. And in preparation for that, he says, and I'll drown my book. I mean, he's an old magus he's a magician his magic book or whatever and then an extraordinary thing happens at the end of the tempest right and it it's just one of those things that reminds you that we don't overread shakespeare or read too much into him. we can of course you can overread or read too much into this but shakespeare no he seems to be in control of the full range of meanings and possible meanings and significances about everything i mean so what happens is there's an epilogue at the end of the tempest and you have to imagine that when you read it, that, that Shakespeare knew this was his farewell to the theater, and it definitively was, right? I mean, pretty much definitively was, with maybe a couple of little quibbly exceptions. But there's an epilogue, and it's spoken by Prospero, right? But very often, the actor comes out and does it in a way that suggests it's not it's the actor playing Prospero. You know, it can be done ambiguously. And he says, now my charms are all overthrown and what strength I have's my, mine own, which is most faint. Now tis true, I must be here confined by you or sent to Naples. So the action of the play, which was seemed determined by the body of the play, is now suddenly open again. And the actor is saying, I'm actually dependent upon you to send me back to Naples. Um... Let me not, since I have my dukedom, God, and pardon the deceiver, dwell in this bare island by your spell, but release me from my bands with help of your good hands. Gentle breath of yours my sails must fill, or else my project fails, or else my project fails. He's saying your applause is what, and, and the wind of your approbation as an audience is what will empower my trip back to Naples. But at that moment, he has to be Shakespeare saying that I was dependent upon, you thought I cast a spell on you and that was my power, but I was always dependent upon you as an audience to make that work. It was a contract mm. between mm -hmm. us in some sense. Um, Gentle breath of yours, my sails must fill or else my project fails, which was to please what an extraordinary moment. And I, I can't equate, no one can be equated with Shakespeare, but there is really, and Dana, you, I'm sure Julia too, you know precisely what I'm referring to, where you feel very much as a moviegoer that Scorsese is saying, I, I might be done now. So anyway, Shakespeare. That's a beautiful, beautiful, I, I love that you read that. It also makes me think that it's a, in a way a mature and less comedic version of, of Puck's closing speech, right? Yeah. Give me your hands if we be friends, yes. right? He's asking for applause <laughs> exactly. in the same way. One, one note on Scorsese, though, that I have to make just because I talk about this in my review, in fact, whether or not it's his last movie. He has two other projects in the oh, work already, probably, including yeah. another adaptation of a David Graham Yes, book. The Wager, yeah. All right, Julia, thank you so much. It was really fun. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Dana. That was wonderful. Great show. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. 
Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Thank you.